My friends, good morning. It's good to be with you today. I want to share with you something that I shared with a couple of our daily mass goer, uh, our, our daily mass going crowd earlier this week. Now, as you see by our very bright green adornment, we have exited a series of solemnities. In a period of time in the calendar year where every day seemed to be special, we came out of the baptism of the Lord, the feast of the Epiphany, all of our wonderful saints like St. Stephen. We had uh, Christmas Day, Christmas Eve. We had all those days of intense preparation in Advent. And now we land in ordinary time, and everything is, well, ordinary. Or at least so it would seem. All the twinkling lights have disappeared, all of the decorations, with the exception of a few poinsettias that I'm sure will not live much longer. I don't know what sort of things they feed these flowers, but with these few exceptions, everything tends to become more muted and damped down. And sometimes I fear that it's, it's a sort of analogy for the way that we treat our faith, as if on the big days, we, we do it up. We believe in that stuff, you know? Of course, well, I'm going to go to church for that. I'm going to pray about that. Maybe I'll even crack open my Bible. But now, it's January, and it's gray, and, well, I'm not interested. Things become, or seem to become, ordinary. They lose a little bit of their luster, and they lose our attention. And I'm sorry to say that I think that this happens, just from watching, from all the way in the beginning of our lives. We do our baptism, right, and that's a big deal. Oh my gosh, we might even order a cake. All the pastel icing, we get our little candles out. We get, you know, we buy our baptismal cards and maybe a couple children's Bibles and rosaries that they won't be able to read for, you know, who knows how long. And then uh, after the baptism day, put it all up on the shelf, and it gathers dust over time until it just becomes ordinary. Our faith becomes ordinary, and our baptism becomes ordinary. But can I tell you, I had a professor in seminary who shared with me his opinion. He said, you will spend the rest of your life trying to understand what happened to you in your baptism. You will spend the rest of your life trying to unpack all that you were given in that moment when you were barely conscious but you were baptized. Maybe for some of you, a little more conscious than others, depending on your entrance into the church. But when he said this, it kind of rubbed against the grain of the ordinary dust-gathering faith and proposed that there might have been something more, as we heard in our gospel today. It was only through his baptism that John was able to recognize Jesus. This was the moment of revelation. This was the thing that kicked everything else off. So what lies hidden inside your baptism, yours? I'm not talking about a theoretical thing. Presumably, if you were here, you're either preparing to be baptized 
or you've been baptized, what will you unpack as you start to investigate? All the way in the beginning, this time not of your life, but of all life, Catholics who know their scriptures will remember in Genesis chapter 1, we read, in the beginning, the Spirit hovered over the waters. Before a thing was made, the Spirit was hovering over waters. Scholars will tell you that those waters were not like some sort of pre-existing primordial matter from which everything else derived, but rather they were the author's opportunity of providing a symbol, a symbol to represent all that stood against God. Nothingness, chaos, disorder, and brokenness stood opposed to the Creator until the Spirit hovered over the waters and God said, let there be light. And with his creative word, things started to be. All of the chaos became ordered, became purposed. God started doing things with it. And everything that he did, everything he made, was good. It was all good. God separated the land from the water. And creation, new creation, became and was good. God used the water to be pulled up into the heavens and wash over all other things, to sanctify them, to make them fruitful, to be able once again to kick things off. And all of this was very good until human beings did something that was not so good. Hmm? And when they did that not so good thing, it was like dominoes falling one after another fighting against God, choosing against God, fighting against brother, choosing against sister. We would do acts of violence and deception, all manner of not good things, until a few chapters later on in Genesis, God looked at all that he had created, and he saw that it was not good. Unfortunately, it had devolved had gone back to the chaos and nothingness from whence it had come. And he decided to remedy this option. Discontent with the chaos and the disorder and the opposition to his goodness, he sent once again water. Water in abundance, superabundance, mega abundance. We know the story of Noah and the flood. And we know that in that story, water served a very important purpose. It did two things. One, it came down and washed away every bad thing. It cleansed creation. And then the second thing it did was preserve life for a new creation to begin. Those who stood with God as a part of his purposes remained and were invigorated by the water. And once the waters began to recede, guess what appeared? A dove alighted upon Noah's ark to be able to reveal God's plans for mercy, a new beginning, 
to kick things off again. Noah's prodigy and progeny began to multiply over the earth. God chose particular people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He sent them off to a promised land, a good place flowing with milk and honey, until, in fear, they left that land. Trying to find food for themselves, they went to Egypt. And while in Egypt, they were enslaved. Until once again, water appeared on the scene. You'll remember after all of those plagues, the man Moses led God's chosen people out to the Red Sea. And once again, God decided to use water to communicate the, the, the eternal nature of his care for mankind, his chosen people. Now the water became a sort of passage. Remember Moses struck the water and it parted. And all of a sudden, it stood like a wall on either side for them to pass through. And as they passed through the water, they became something new. They were something old on one side. They were something new on the other. They were slaves on one side. They were free on the other. They were separated from God on the one side. They were with him in his peace on the other. Once again, water became a sort of passageway or vessel, and all those who passed through the water were reunited with the God who loved them. Once again, water served a clarifying purpose. It washed and cleansed not only the Israelites, but all of those Egyptians that would stand against them. Do you know this is a great line. This line doesn't make it into the movies about the Red Sea. I don't know why. Talk to Hollywood. It's a great line. It's one I wish that all of my faithful knew. It's what Moses says to the chosen people just before they pass through. Do you know it? Israel is shaking. They're terrified because they see their captors coming down upon them. They will not let Israel be free. Pharaoh and his chariots are racing towards the Red Sea. And Israel looks at Moses and says, what did you bring us out here for? We couldn't just die in our beds. We have to die here in this unknown land in chaos. And Moses says, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Egyptians you see and fear, you will never see again. He proposes a freedom that's not temporary, but always. And do you know those Egyptians started to cross through the Red Sea until God summoned the waters back down? And once again, the chaos became muted. The disorder was washed away as God's creative purposes pushed history forward. Water makes at least one other important appearance 
When finally the chosen people after the Red Sea crossed through the desert round and round, after they'd gone through saga after saga, all this drama revolving around their relationship with God, they approached the borderland of the place God had promised to them, the good place. And the defining border was the Jordan River. When they got to the Jordan River, they allowed God to move before them through the Ark of the Covenant, the place of God's dwelling. The priests brought that into the river. And do you know what that river did? Just like the Red Sea, it parted. It stopped and allowed them to cross through, following after the God who led them. The people were then led by Joshua, Moses' successor. His Hebrew name was Yeshua. Funny story, that's actually the same Hebrew name for Jesus. And he led his people into the chosen, the promised land. That Jordan River was later, some thousand years, struck by Elijah, the prophet. As he was moving towards his meeting with God, he struck the river with his mantle, and once again the water parted, and he was led into this place where a fiery chariot swooped down like an Uber to drive him away, back to living with God, body and soul in heaven. Hey, y'all, that's a lot of water. There's a lot of things going on there, but I want to propose to you that none of that is on accident, and all of that makes an appearance in our gospel today when John the Baptist, the new Elijah, waits in the Jordan River, the border of promise, for the new Joshua, that is to say, Jesus, who will precede his people into the water, bringing with him their sin, their chaos, and their fear. And when he goes into that water, uniting all of those things to his person, the heavens that were closed with Adam are opened again. What's evil begins to be washed away. And behold, a new creation, marked by the sign of the dove, the spirit that once more hovers over the waters to be able to make something new. Now hear me out here. Make something new. Jesus does this miraculous thing in the baptism, but I told you at the beginning of this homily I wasn't here to tell you about a hypothetical baptism. I wasn't here to talk about some highfalutin idea. I'm not here to talk about a theory. I'm here to talk about your baptism. Your baptism which is anything but ordinary. When Jesus sanctified those waters, when he brought opportunities for freedom, he did it perpetually. He did it for each and every person. As he united humanity to himself, he was thinking of you. He looked out at the moment when a little water once again would rush over your head. All that was opposed to God would be clarified, washed away, destroyed. And as you passed through that font, you would move from slavery to freedom. You might not be running from Egyptians. You might not be running from a flood. But whatever you're running from, 
whatever fear seems to follow you, whatever anxiety seems to stand against the God of hope and love. Heed the words of Moses today. Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he has worked for you today. For that thing that you fear, that you see, that chases you down to the banks of the border of promise, well, you need never see that again. Baptized in Christ, you have become a new creation. You were one thing. Now you're something new. In this ordinary time, I invite, I implore you to please investigate and unpack your baptism. It will take you the rest of your life, but you will discover graces in abundance. Amen.